Grace and peace to all our listeners from a History of Christian Theology podcast. My name is Chad Kim, and I am the host of the podcast. This week we will begin a two-part conversation of our most significant theological work to date, Justin Martyr's First Apology. Shepherd of Hermas was a bit longer, but the theology far less penetrating. For this work, we wanted to bring in someone who disagreed with Justin's argument in order to get a sense of how compelling was his case and defense of the Christian faith. So I'm pleased to welcome a friend of mine from high school, Caleb Frizz. He will introduce himself a bit in the actual conversation, but now we turn to a quick summary of Justin Martyr's first apology. This treatise is called an apology because Justin Martyr is giving a defense of why the Christian faith is a reasonable faith and not one that should require the immediate scorn of the cultured pagan Romans, and most especially does not warrant capital punishment, as was often the case. Justin's version of apologetics, if we want to call it that, is substantially different from modern-day apologetics. The minimal claim that Justin wants his readers to walk away with is that Christianity is not a stupid religion and not an immoral one that warrants death. For Justin, this is success. In modern-day apologetics, Success is generally the conversion of the hearer. This is not primarily Justin's intent. Born in Samaria around 100 AD, Justin was unique in that he was a very thoroughly trained Roman in philosophy and grammar, in addition to being a Samaritan. This writing is roughly simultaneous with Shepherd of Hermas and possibly First Clement, neither of which Justin quotes or seems to be familiar with. Justin is ultimately called the martyr because he witnesses to his faith and his death. This book claims to be written to the Emperor Antonius Pius and his son Marcus Aurelius. In large part, he wants the Emperor or the Senate to stop persecuting Christians solely based on their name. He believes Christianity to be reasonable and true using roughly two arguments. Basically, Justin looks at other Greco-Roman myths and argues that Christianity is similar in order to make it not look so foreign, although he believes that it to be believes Christianity to be true unlike the Greco-Roman myth. He also argues that the foundation of Christianity, Jesus the Christ, literally in Greek meaning anointed or Messiah, was prophesied in the Old Testament and physically died and resurrected. After these two major points argued over 40 or so chapters, Justin gives a good summary of what Christian worship looked like in the early 2nd century, describing the Eucharist, confession, reading the scriptures, and expositing the scriptures. The only thing lacking when compared to a contemporary service would be singing. In his first two parts, in this first of two parts, Caleb, Tom, and I will discuss the background to persecution in the Greco-Roman world, whether or not Justin actually intended to be heard by the emperor, and to what extent Justin's argument is correct that Christianity is the oldest religion, uh, especially because of its roots in Judaism. Thanks for listening, and please check out our blog at ahistoryofchristiantheology.com or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Here's our conversation. So, um, so we're recording, um, and I should start by saying my apologies uh, to Tom uh, and to our listeners for the miscommunication uh, about the time that we were recording. Uh, so it's a little earlier than normal, a little earlier for Tom, uh, but we're, going to record today with uh, uh, my friend Caleb Frizz. You've just heard a little introduction. Uh, he also studied philosophy at University of Chicago. Uh, and uh, in order to introduce some uh, diversity, we found another white guy who studied philosophy at undergrad. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's right. Western European philosophy. 
but who happens to take a different stance on the question of the existence of God. Uh, and so, curiously, uh, from the Justin, we're reading the first apology of Justin, and in the text, they are charged with being atheists, um, which at the time, of course, just meant that they uh, were they did not believe in the Roman pantheon uh, that was the standard uh, sort of religious practice of the day. So they were charged with atheism, um, and this was sort of a crime against the state because they would not worship the emperor and sort of follow social norms. Um, so Justin is trying to give his justification for why um, this is a reasonable belief. Um, and so it is sort of curious because today we will have an atheist amongst us, uh, and it is not the two Christians, um, but the atheist in the strict meaning of the word, as in one who does not believe that there is a God. Uh, and so that will be Caleb here. Yes. So if I can just introduce myself, first a little disclaimer. Uh, I'm not here representing my company. Uh, I'm not here representing my family. There's several evangelical pastors in my extended family. So in no way uh, am I supported by them or representing them. I'm strictly uh, representing my own personal opinions on this podcast. And I also want to say that I, um, for the first 20 years of my life, was a devout Christian in the evangelical tradition. So I, uh, everything that I say, I don't mean to be in any way disrespectful towards uh, Christians or believers of any religion. And I uh, have an intimate understanding of what it's like to be a Christian. I believe the same thing for a long time. Uh, I'm moving a little slowly this morning mentally. I'm tired. <laughs> Is that why you apologize, Chad? Because I sound differently? Because I was thinking the audience would have no idea that we started late, given that you will upload the podcast whenever you upload it. <laughs> well, I, yeah, it was, it was sort of an apology if your voice sounds different. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> so, Caleb... Um, uh, Chad said that you're an atheist. Are you an atheist or, or an agnostic? Or would you say that, I mean, where, where do you fall on the spectrum, so to speak? In that? No, I'm, I'm definitely an atheist. So maybe we should take a minute just to talk about the meaning of the word. So atheist, uh, it's a Greek word. Uh, the A at the beginning is an alpha privative. Uh, it just means without. Uh, so without God, I think a pretty good translation into English would be godless. Uh, so basically, I, it's not, I'm not against gods. I'm fine with people believing whatever they want to believe. Um, I think it's great. I think it's a rich cultural tradition that should continue. I don't want to tear anyone down. I want, don't want to destroy any people's culture. But I don't think that it's actually true. So personally, um, and with my family, we're just talking about with my children. I'm not teaching them about God. I don't want anyone to teach them about God. Um, so I'm without God. I'm godless. I don't believe in him. I don't think it's real. Uh, Jesus, you know, the Holy Spirit, all of that. It's not something that is something that I've considered very seriously over a long period of time. And I can no longer hold to that in good conscience. Gotcha. Um, how did you feel about Justin's arguments? <laughs> As I'm reading this, Chad had kind of introed uh, a couple weeks back saying, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but 
I think he, he maybe it was on the show or in conversation said, well, we'll see what my friend Caleb thinks about the arguments that Justin offers. I have to right. admit, I can't imagine anybody being super compelled by Justin's arguments in the first apology. <laughs> right. Well, uh, it's actually an interesting point because I think it gets right to um, the first point that uh, Chad wanted to bring up in the email regarding the text, which was, who is the audience? So I found the arguments not only not compelling, but like suspiciously so, to the point that it didn't even make sense. The conceit of the whole text is that it's written to the emperor himself to the Roman Senate, you know, making a strong argument saying, this is the only rational thing you claim to be rational uh, philosophers um, who love uh, Roman and Greek poetry. And the argument from that is that you would have to believe in Jesus, which I say is patently absurd, not just to a modern reader, but even to um, a contemporaneous reader, uh, at least from the Roman elite. So I think that that is just a conceit of the text. I uh, Basing that almost solely on my reading of the text, but I did this morning go and look up one um, scholarly example of a paper written by a Catholic uh, Christian for her uh, master's thesis, and she did also make the same point. Um, there's a few reasons to believe that from the text. One is that um, to, wait, the form of address to the emperor is actually incorrect. Okay. So it would never make it um, into an actual legal proceeding. It would just be flat out rejected. So there's no way that this actually ever came before uh, the Roman court. Uh, it wouldn't have been taken seriously. So I view this more as like an open letter to basically the, the Christian base, the believers of the day, and then like sympathetic pagans. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you to clarify. So, and I will mention in the introduction something of the dating um, and a few other historical I issues like that. But yeah, so Justin does um, claim to be writing to the Emperor Titus, Alias, Adrianus, Antoninus, Pius, Augustus, Caesar, um, uh, and and to his son Verissimus. So he claims to be writing and to the Sacred Senate. The at least according to his own introduction, that is his audience. Um, so Caleb. Uh, you're making the argument that not, that is not actually the case, that they would have never heard it, um, but, right. but rather it would be either to somewhat sympathetic Christians or uh, pagans who, who may be open to uh, different beliefs. Right, and the, the reason that I came to be suspicious of that and went to look up this scholarly reference was just because the, the argument is so flat-out insulting to the Romans, to the elites. He's calling their gods demons. He's calling them derivative of uh, Jewish gods, um, which would have been extremely insulting at the time because there was an extreme anti-Semitism in Roman culture. Um, they had just totally basically committed genocide uh, against the Jews, destroyed their entire homeland. Uh, uh, Jewish people weren't allowed back into Israel under any circumstances during this time frame. So uh, there was a very negative perception of uh, Jews at the time. And to be claiming to the most elite, powerful Romans that some tiny little periphery organization at your frontier is actually the origin of everything that you are would be, you know, more than a smack in the face. It would just be totally 
uh, ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, his audience definitely thought of it as ridiculous, though. I mean, he would have known that already because, I mean, his audience has been putting them to death for, you know, a pretty good stretch now. I mean, the Christians had been uh, had been an illegal cult, you know, since the 60s uh, with varying degrees of of persecution. So the, the initial persecution that would have been brought, at least from a legal standpoint, would have been brought from Nero uh, in the early 60s. Um, but the stance of the Ulpian and the Antonine emperors, which for our audience is uh, the, the emperors who ruled from about 96, the first one being Nerva and the last one being Marcus Aurelius, um, uh, and that would, their, their, uh, their dynasty would last to about 180. Um, actually, that's when Marcus Aurelius died. They also, their dynasty lasted into Commodus. I can't remember when Commodus died. Um, but he didn't rule too long. Uh, but their official position and stance on, you know, Christian, um, uh, on the Christian cult was that the cult was fine uh, if it uh, kept to itself um, and didn't say anything. Like, I mean, they didn't make any public overtures of any kind, which the Christian cult has never been, uh, they, they've never been willing to do. Uh, the Christian cult has always been, um, and by the way, I use the word cult right now for our audience because that's what they were considered uh, from the Roman perspective. So I'm kind of speaking from the the imperial perspective. Um, uh, they were a religio illicita, which means an illicit or an illegal religion. So they were classified as a cult and, uh, uh, you know, but... We have writings from Trajan, which we read a little bit ago. We have people tend to think that this little addendum to his letter by um, uh, by Hadrian uh, is sourced in a real writing of Hadrian's. Uh, so their stance has been if they're public and if they uh, are causing a nuisance, so to speak, then they are to be arrested. They are to be put to death. It was a minor persecution, but at the same time, um, there's several uh, accounts of Christians being uh, killed uh, for their faith. Right. So I wanted to um, build on what Tom is saying with the whole, to just give some historical perspective to the listeners, not just for the Christian persecution, but the Romans actually were pretty awful in terms of persecuting religious minorities. Um, There's historical records of them persecuting the Bacchans, which were followers of Dionysus, um, Druids, in uh, modern-day England, and then, of course, uh, the Jewish people. That was by far the most severe, not to downplay the um, you know horrendous suffering of the Christians, but it, it really paled in comparison to the persecution that was leveled against the Jews and the level of, of just hatred and invective um, that actually was the foundation of modern anti-Semitism and has continued to this day in an unbroken chain. I would only slightly contend with that point a little bit, not concerning what happened to the Jews, obviously, but that the Romans were not in general a a prosecuting, uh, I mean, they in general were somewhat relaxed when it came to differing religions. Even Israel itself was at one point a uh, illicit, not an illicit, but actually a legal religion, a legal cult that had legal status. Uh, in the empire, but Rome treated religion the way that they 
treated the, the nations surrounding them. It was, generally speaking, kind of a uh, you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone uh, kind of mentality. Rome had felt uh, that, that Israel was a pain uh, in its side because of perennial rebellions. So, for instance, the recent destruction of Israel, which our audience probably doesn't know a ton about, was preempted by the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, which was just one more in a long, you know, strains of revolts that had uh, unfolded over the course of the previous decades. Of course, Rome, uh, Israel had already essentially been obliterated by the Emperor Titus uh, under, or not the Emperor Titus, the General Titus who would become Emperor under Vespasian. Uh, and the fact that the Bar Kokhba revolt was able to, you know, take, take place, uh, that compelled Hadrian to go in and uh, I mean, he leveled Israel, turned it to, you know, basically to nothing. So, I mean, definitely. But what they the did. motivation for those revolts um, was because of the religious persecution. Uh, the Jews felt that they couldn't practice their religion the way they wanted to because they wanted to worship only one God. Um, yeah, I would, have I would to that. To, I mean, uh, Caesar, I definitely... the major issue uh, for yeah. Jesus, he has to navigate that famously saying, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Um, that issue ended up exploding in that revolt you mentioned, you know, a few decades later and leading to the total annihilation of Jerusalem. Yeah, I think that this is, I mean, would kind of get gets away a little bit from the point of the text, in it, but I would contend with that. I mean, it, historically, Israel's, I, I think their cause for revolt was that they wanted to be free. They didn't want to be subjected. Um, they were illicit religion. They were not an illegal religion. I mean, that's, I mean, that's something that, I mean, that doesn't mean that they were necessarily looked upon favorably. I mean, you always had, you know, racism and you had ethnocentrism and all of those kinds of things. When, when Pompey uh, takes over uh, Judea, makes it a Roman province, uh, he initially, uh, well, I shouldn't say Roman province, he initially makes it a Roman client kingdom. He puts uh, Jewish, well, not quite Jewish, but Demand. Close enough and ruler over them and leaves them to themselves. And it's because of their rebellions against that ruler that Augustus will make Judea a uh, principality of Rome. It's beside the point, but I mean, I don't think, I mean, there certainly was ethnocentrism and, you know, racism and all that kind of stuff, but I, they're not in general. And there were other cults that they definitely picked on. I mean, so I'm not claiming some kind of a peculiar thing for Christianity. It was the experience of many. But Rome, compared to many imperial powers of antiquity, had a reputation for being pretty tolerant, actually. Right. Well, I think we'll just have to agree to disagree and let our listeners decide for themselves. Yeah, yeah fair enough. So we talked a little bit about the nature um, of Justin's uh, rhetoric, as it were. Um, is he being unfair to the Romans, uh, to the pagans. He is calling their gods demons. He's talking about deception by the demons of the Romans. Now, that being said, the contentions, at least as far as Celsus is concerned and other pagans, uh, was that the Christians were, you know, they're engaged in orgies, that they were only a, a religion for the women and the slaves and what to them were, you know, stupid lower classes. I mean, it's not as if the Romans are think very highly uh, of the Christians generally and speak of them quite poorly. And the uh, you know the sort of maybe over what feels like over the top uh, rhetoric from Justin. 
I mean, maybe minor in comparison to what uh, they actually claim to him. I mean, all he's saying is, is that they're just not, it's just not true. Your religion is false. Mine is true. I don't know that we should expect any different. Um, I mean, this is what he believes. Uh, and, and in any academic conversation, um, you are going to think that you are right um, and that someone else is wrong, as is evidenced by <laughs> the disagreement a few minutes ago. And that doesn't mean that, that you know, we hate each other or something. It's just, well, I think what I believe is true and, and you should uh, feel the same way. And so the fact that he believes that they're false doesn't necessarily uh, mean that he's somehow being uncharitable necessarily. And like I said, I mean, you might say it's not even as extreme uh, as the cases that were brought against Christians who are now being put to death for uh, this very thing that they thought. So, Well, I do think he does kind of overstate his case, though. For instance, he says that uh, it's it's a rational case that anyone who just, we're, we're not convinced because of something someone told us, we're convinced based on the evidence. Um, and then he uses two major forms of evidence, one of which is uh, the demon argument, and the other is uh, the prophecy. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, well, let me restate that. So there's the demon prophecy argument, which is that somehow all of the Greek and Roman myths have actually been coded references to Jesus um, that were inspired by demons who read Moses and then transferred it across the Mediterranean to the Greek and Roman philosophers and poets. So that's the first argument, which to me is just patently ridiculous. And then the second argument is, of course, the more familiar one to the Christians of today, which is um, that the Hebrew scriptures gave prophecies for the coming Messiah. And it's so astounding how accurate these prophecies were that we must uh, yield to the evidence to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. Yeah, just so a comment on those, that, that it, he does, he uses two basic arguments. I mean, those those really, I mean, that was a good summary of both of them. Uh, a little thing I would add about the first argument, which you referenced, I, I kind of would break up these two arguments into two categories. He has, on the one hand, his... Um, what you might call his uh, primary argument or kind of his, his affirmative argument, so to speak, that being the prophecies, right? He's, his argument is essentially something like this. We know that Christianity is true because, look, there are all of these prophecies that were written some, and he actually mentions some several dates uh, and actually shows his ignorance of the, the actual history of Israel and so forth and the history, even of the accepted uh, compilation of the Old Testament. But by he basically says, you know, we have these various prophecies, some that are several thousand years old. Right, uh, so it's 5,000 Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at the end of that, he says, these prophecies tell us about Jesus and about certain things that were to come. These things happened, therefore... Uh, we know that the that the Christian religion is true because of these ancient prophecies, which, as you said, that's a pretty standard tack uh, of Christians in argumentation. Um, his second argument, or as the one that you mentioned first, is not an affirmative argument. It is actually meant to be a refutation, meaning it's his attempt to respond to an argument that was brought against him in his day which uh, I think is actually totally appropriate because it's a common argument uh, leveled today. Um, And 
the argument that is leveled today against Christians or against Christianity is the idea that the Christian story, the story that is of Jesus, of his virgin birth, of his death, of his resurrection, that uh, you can find pieces of that story in various pagan myths. And so the pagans are coming along and saying, look, you're just rehashing old stories that, that we've been telling forever. Uh, you're not authentic. You're not original. And his response to that is, no, your stories came from one of two sources. Either one, you have, he actually, I, I agree, it's absurd. He, he actually argues that Plato read Moses or that some of these guys actually read uh, some of the Old Testament writings and were inspired by them. And two, and this was the more common tact, that demons had read the Old Testament and that the demons, after, after reading the Old Testament, came and inspired um, Greek pagan writers to, to kind of tell stories that were similar uh, but, but were different enough uh, so that people could use this as a criticism against Christianity. So that's his, his response to that line of argument, uh, which I think uh, is, is in general a fairly poor <laughs> line of reasoning. I agree with you. Uh, on that, um, he does a better job than I ever could of outlining all of the parallels between, because obviously he's way more familiar with it than I am, between the pagan theology, the pagan mysticism, and the uh, Christian uh, theology of the time. Like you said, he mentions the virgin birth, uh, the ascension, uh, coming back from the dead, um, all these miraculous things that happen in the New Testament that Christians accept as fact are actually, you know, just bits and pieces of pre-existing religious myths. And so it's pretty easy to take an atheistic viewpoint where, okay, Christianity is just another one of these myths. It's meaningful to people at the time that they believe it, but uh, like no one believes in the Greek pantheon now in a few thousand years, probably We'll think of. Uh, we'll probably still use the names and the ideas and the stories from um, the Christian religion, but no one's actually going to believe it. You think in a few dozen years? Thousand. Oh, a few thousand years. I thought you said a few dozen years. I was like, oh. no, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that's that's a pretty optimistic atheist. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. I have I have no doubt that Christianity will endure for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. People well, actually did think in the. Uh, you know, uh, the turn of the, you know, the Enlightenment period when, uh, you know, during the, when Hume was popular and Voltaire and those guys, they really did believe that the, that the twilight of Christianity was on its way and that it would just be a, a fairly short period of time before it passed out of, uh, out of history. But Right. Well, they said the same thing about capitalism and uh, like Christianity, they've both been able to adapt and change (laughs) with the times, you know, overcome all these crises. Like right now, there's a crisis in the Christian church over gay marriage. I'm pretty sure Christianity is going to get over it, adapt, move on um, and be even more resilient in this century. Yeah, it is fascinating to see it, though, in Western civilization because it is declining in Western civilization. And it seems to be increasing in Eastern civilization. That is, that I guess that's not really wording it correctly, but the Christian church seems to be finding its greatest growth in uh, Asia and in Africa and declining, of course, in Europe and in America, in terms of numbers, that is. Well, in a way, I guess it's getting back to its roots because it's more popular among, I guess, the poor, the disenfranchised than, um, you know, the elites. Like we sitting here, 
in our nice <laughs> air-conditioned room, talking over our electronic devices for fun, you know, having time off of work. We're, you know, we've got it pretty good. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm sure that if you're looking at it from a different perspective, uh, that Jesus would probably be a lot more appealing. <laughs> well, and again... <laughs> And that's a it's a helpful thing to think about, you know, our context in which we read theology, which we read, you know, uh, uh, these books, bound copies of, you know, all of these ancient documents. You know, Justin had a lot less to go on. Um, and and I mean, he clearly thinks that what he's doing is a defense of a large swath of the population or of his population of, of people who, you know, maybe can't stand up for themselves. I mean, so he's one of the very early you know, philosophically trained individuals that we have in the Christian tradition. I mean, Paul's trained as a rabbi um, and most of the other, you know, people that we've read have, you know, enough education to read and write, uh, but maybe not the grasp of uh, the the broader pagan culture that Justin does. And so, um, you know, what we call it, an, it's called an apology, apologia, a defense of what um, Justin thinks is true. And I, I mean, I think he takes himself to be helping Christians who don't have a voice um, and try takes himself to be giving that voice to whoever it may be. If it actually gets to the emperor or if it's just meant for a broad public, um, he doesn't want them to be looked down upon as, as simply fools and just sort of duped by uh, people with sort of better sophistry and and so you know t- and being taken advantage of and and he's re- re- you know so i think it is helpful to see who justin is uh, as a as a as a writer and you know vis-a-vis the rest of the christian population in the broader uh, greco-roman world right so i guess you could say that that part of the argument is successful in that he's arguing against persecution of christians um i think it's a pretty reasonable thing to ask you know please don't kill me for believing what I believe, but I just wanted to mention here, uh, right now, uh, the Christians are in the minority, but pretty soon the shoe is going to be on the other foot, and um, Christians level pretty much the exact same accusations against the Gnostics and other heretics that are leveled against them here by the Romans, especially relating to all the uh, sexual uncomfortableness with orgies and things of that nature. There's all kinds of crazy um, accusations that get thrown in the next couple centuries between Christians. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, there's going to be a sl- an evolution, so to speak, of, uh, you know, kind of how the government approaches religion once Constantine converts to Christianity. Um, he'll, of course, initially uh, proclaim, and, and this is very odd for the time, He'll proclaim uh, through the Edict of Milan a principle of religious toleration. Um, And he does that because he co-rules with uh, a pagan emperor. So Licinius, who will be ruling in the East, is a pagan. Constantine is a Christian. um, And through the Edict of Milan, they have a principle of toleration. Uh, That will quickly be upended um, when uh, only for the sake of, as Constantine would think of it, uh, maintaining unity within the church. I say only, not like I think that's okay. Basically, he would justify um, not killing. He never, it, Constantine actually never, uh, under his reign, the government never killed anybody uh, for their religious views, or at least not legally. I mean, not like 
officially. I mean, he probably killed plenty of people who were undesirable and it may have been connected to their religious views. But by the time you get to Theodosius, who would reign within 80 years, he actually, uh, under his reign, will pass two edicts, one outlying um, first heretics. So it'll be under Theodosius uh, that it becomes illegal to diverge from the Catholic Church if you're a, a, a Catholic Christian. Um, and that will be aimed primarily at Arians, uh, which we'll get to someday. Uh, basically people who didn't believe in the eternality of Christ. Uh, and then he'll issue a second edict towards the end of his reign where he actually outlaws paganism. And for the first time, Christianity will begin uh, persecuting paganism. But it's true, uh, the tables will be turned. It takes about 80 years to get there. So there's a, a slight evolution within uh, the Roman Empire uh, to get to that once Constantine converts. But it does happen. And then that's that's definitely characteristic of Christian governments from that point all the way up to the Enlightenment. Well, and beyond the Enlightenment, basically all the way up to uh, the French Revolution, really. I mean, you have in Europe governments that prosecute people uh, at the, to varying degrees based on their religion. But lest we jump too far forward, uh, we are dealing with Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century, right. and we're talking about developments of the early 4th century. Um, so we have 130-some-odd years yet, 40-some-odd years yet, before any official, well, even toleration of Christianity by the Roman government. So when we have people like Justin uh, who are writing from a, what you know comes to be an orthodox standpoint, I mean, he he, ten, he mentioned something similar to the Trinity, and we, you know, he very much wants to talk about the, the physical resurrection of Christ. I mean, and going back even a little further to Ignatius uh, uh, of uh, Antioch, who we've already discussed, we have Christians who are mentioning heresy, mentioning false teaching contra Gnosticism long before there's an official position of the state. Um, so this is a grouping, a small grouping of people who, yes, are looking to, um, you know, define what is true uh, for their organization, uh, for their church, but they're doing it not from a position of power, um, and, and if anything, from, you know, a place of weakness. I mean, so it's not, it's not like they just... Uh, ha have a heavy-handed sword and they can just wield it against whoever they will, um, they're, they're preparing to go to their death for the, what they believe to be the truth um, of the resurrection. Um, and that's pretty much the only thing that they take to be, or the most significant thing that they take to be, you know, heresy versus orthodoxy is this question of, do you believe that the word physically died and resurrected? And it's also the same argument that Justin's going to make uh, contra the pagans, um, in chapter 22, um, he basically says, you know, you taught the, the pagan poets and mythologists, mythology writers uh, talk about the sons of Jupiter, um, talk about them being the creator of all things and talk about them dying. But we actually this actually happened uh, for, for Justin, the son of God, the Logos, you know, he is the one who died and resurrected. Um, so it's it's kind of uh, I think C.S. Lewis makes the same argument later on. It's. It's myth, but it's true. <laughs> um, and so the difference being um, that, that Justin believed that this actually uh, occurred. So while it does sound like other myths, it's, it's not meant to just be a story told, as he says, to teach, um, to write, teach students to write. 
Um, but it's, it's actually happened. This is history. Um, now, I don't want to delve too much into the historical question, but that is his argument. Um, that's, what, uh, that's what he's trying to use as persuasive. Right. But, well, I do agree with you that there is a very strong uh, element of proto-orthodoxy in this letter. A lot of it you could just take out, put in the Bible, and you wouldn't even know the difference. But I did want to make a point. There's one very unorthodox thing that he says, which is that he's very clear and strong on salvation by works, not by belief. So let me go to the text. Um, this is in chap concerning patience and swearing. He says, and let those who are not found living as he taught be understood to be no Christians, even though they profess with the lip of precepts of Christ. For those, for not those who make profession, but those who do the works shall be saved according to his word. So he's referencing some kind of unquoted scripture here, saying that works, not a profession of faith, are the means of salvation. Well, one thing I would just remind you of, of course, is that is not orthodox from a Protestant perspective, but it would be highly orthodox from both a Roman Catholic and an Eastern Orthodox perspective, which um, in these earliest theologians, of course, uh, you find kind of an admixture, so to speak, of of both of those. Uh, you know, you, you you find these early theologians. Some of them will will uh, actually contradict themselves. They'll they'll have a passage where they firmly affirm uh, that. I probably should never use those two words together in the same sentence. Where they strongly affirm a salvation by belief, uh, but then in the same text they'll affirm salvation by works. Uh, Justin, as far as I can see in this, only affirms salvation by works. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see both of those uh, lines of thinking popping up in kind of these early theologians. Uh, but it does seem that when it's everything starts to take shape, uh, when the church becomes more um, of a bureaucracy and more monolithic, more of an organization in a sense, uh, they do seem to hold to the view that salvation is not just by faith, but is by works as well. So Justin is a part of that ongoing tradition. Yeah, and um, so this brings up something, I believe that we mentioned last time with Hermas. Yeah, so Hermas seems to be, you know, clearly of this, uh, the necessity for works, almost no place for the Holy Spirit. Um, oh, he takes, yeah. it to, he takes it to the extreme. For sure. And so yeah. Justin is not to that extreme, and he also talks quite a bit about the work of Christ, where where Shepherd Herm, uh, the the Shepherd of Hermas does not. Uh, so I think what you know, taking a little bit of the arc of what we've been reading, we can see with Justin, if if we think he's a little bit later than the Shepherd of Hermas, um, we can see this arc bending towards um, what, you know, sort of what becomes orthodoxy or proto-orthodoxy or what is more recognizable to to vast majority of Christians, uh, which I think is just an interesting uh, point to take a step back and say, yeah, the, you know, there is a large, like I said, there's a large swath of this material from the period. Um, and, and, and as it, and you can see a sort of progression um, and maybe a sort of winnowing out of, of the theology that's less helpful, um, if you like, or less true. Um, and so Justin may be bending uh, back towards, uh, you know, what, what we uh, come to understand later on as the, the, the true path of orthodoxy. Where do, you, where do you see that bending back towards more of a middle ground between works and faith? 
Oh, I'm not speaking specifically about works and faith. I, I was more talking about the resurrection, the Trinity, okay, some of the it's just the broader strokes of orthodoxy that weren't in the Shepherd of Hermas. Um, so one thing that we'd like to do with the podcast is continue to see development and change. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, he does, but he's quoting scripture I mean, he's quoting from Matthew 25. He sounds a little bit like James. You know, I'm not sure that he's so far, like I thought Hermas was, <laughs> um, so far from even uh, what scripture would warrant um, in terms of his view of works. I mean, I could give you the Augustinian uh, sort of uh, rapprochement between these two views, but of course... Uh, by the way, there's no way that one of our listeners know the word you just used. <laughs> Don't underestimate him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I shouldn't underestimate him. But I do know several of them. I know many of them won't have the foggiest idea what I, I mean, I know I, I actually don't have the foggiest idea what word you just used. <laughs> That's not, I guess I do, even though I don't know any French. But. Well, or reconciliation or trying to bring together two views. I mean, he's, he's just trying to mix them together, and I take it to be a helpful one. But, I mean, these are, you know, again, this is the, the task of theology at work here. Um, Hermes taking a firm line, what looks like James. Justin, maybe in the same trajectory, at least as far as that's concerned. And then and then we'll see uh, as theology progresses uh, a move to sort of bring those two uh, together. Well, I, I wanted to just make a point. The bulk of this text is about 30 chapters um, about the prophecies from Scripture to the reality of Jesus's resurrection. I, I think it's, it's necessary to pause and think about that for a minute just to say, for one, Justin appears to be Roman. Um, he was born in Palestine, uh, but uh, best historians can tell he, his father, at least, uh, was Roman. He was trained as a philosopher. So it's interesting that the Old Testament holds so much sway uh, for him. But that is a, a large portion um, of his argument. And I think it's important. Well, have have you ever heard that everything I read said he's Samaritan? Yeah. Is it when he, by referencing Samaritans at one point in the text, kind of putting them on par with, you know, kind of putting them on par in the eyes of the covenant with Jews, which only a Samaritan would do. A Jew never would do that. And a Gentile would just have no cause to think to do that. So, I mean, I think there's some internal evidence that he is a Samaritan. Okay, so that would that would speak for his knowledge, um, at least to some degree, of, of Old Testament texts. I mean, not not in toto, but anyway. I think so the way that he handles the um, uh, Greek or Roman text is different than the way he handles the Jewish text. With the Greek and Roman. He just kind of references names. He like name drops. He does references. He expects people to be way more familiar with that. Whereas with Jewish texts, he's like quoting at length these passages. A lot of the same passages that, um, you know, modern day Christians would be familiar with as being used to bolster their beliefs. He's obviously trying to introduce that to Mm. pagan audience to someone who's never heard of it. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point. And, I hadn't thought about it like that. I, I think I still had my uh, lens of uh, 21st, century, 21st century Christianity going, yeah, I know these passages. Okay, I get it. Right, which uh, is why maybe it's less interesting for us to talk about it because we're all so familiar with it. We're going towards the uh, uh, novel yeah. part of the text. Well, and I guess one thing that he uh, asserts uh, at several points um, before he launches into the whole – Jewish background is the antiquity of the argument and basically that the Jewish um, line 
from which Jesus comes is older uh, than the Greco-Roman one. So, uh, you know, so yeah, so he needs to introduce all of this stuff. Again, I'm not saying it's true. That's what he believes he's doing. Well, um, it is it is older, but it's not the oldest. So we have uh, Sumerian texts, which are thousands of years older. The birth, really, of um, uh, monotheism, of Jewish monotheism, is... Uh, the Babylonian uh, exile, right? And how did that end? With the Persians defeating the Babylonians. That was the end of over a thousand year empire of the Babylonians. They had written literature, they had texts, they had mythology. So there's much more ancient um, cultures, uh, you know, very well developed uh, post agrarian cultures that have already developed, um, that are living in cities that. Um, have religion, have uh, state governance, have writing uh, before the Israelites ever came on the scene. Yeah, sure. I would, uh, you know, I would add Justin had zero, probably zero access to any of that stuff. I mean, he would have all of most, I mean, your traditional, you know, Babylonian, Sumerian, uh, uh, Akkadian, all of those ancient civilizations that existed they're uh, Canaanite even particular brands of religion uh, would have not been, a, you, know, you just didn't have it around anymore. Whatever had existed in those areas would have morphed along with Greek paganism and what have you to kind of create kind of a new thing that uh, Greeks would have just looked at and identified as their own uh, kind of pagan story. So he would have been ignorant of it. So wouldn't have been able to kind of reflect on it, but you are right. right. Yeah. I mean, fair enough, but knowing what we know now, this argument doesn't hold water. The argument from primacy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of A History of Christian Theology. Next week, we will have Caleb on again in the second part of our conversation over Justin Martyr. In that podcast, you can look forward to Tom and Caleb really getting into the uh, teeth of the argument about whether or not God exists and whether or not Justin's overall argument is reasonable. So please check back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.